You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Grace, and today we're going to be talking about the death of the Isler children, and that's how you think that it's said, right, Sarah? It's my best guess. I hope so. Um, But they actually died in a house fire in 1986, and we actually have some special guests today. They are Kenny and Brendan from the fire department. Um, they actually belong to the other two ladies. So, you know, just say hi, guys. How you doing? Thanks for having us. <laughs> What's going on? So we're just going to get right into it. On the evening of January 22nd, 1986, Catherine Isler and Terrence Lewis put their four children to bed in their home on North Gallatin Avenue in Uniontown. The children were Mark, who was 10 years old, Franklin, nine years old, Tara, eight years old, and Lanny, six years old. The parents then headed to a friend's apartment. The friend was Thomas Skelly, which was a block away above a bar. Later that night, Mark was awakened by his sister screaming. Volunteer firefighter Kyle Snedden and his father, the fire chief at the time, responded to the fire call. Catherine and Terrence, having been alerted to the fire by Skelly, who happened to look out the window and was like, hey, your house is on fire, returned home and to try and rescue their children, but only Mark, the oldest, survived. The younger three unfortunately passed away while inside the home from smoke inhalation. Catherine McLaughlin, a neighbor and teacher at the local elementary school, recalled seeing some of the Isler children at school earlier in the day. She asked a firefighter if they had been able to get the children out of the building and he wouldn't answer her. It was determined by the state police fire marshal, Trooper John McCarvey, that the fire had been set intentionally as gasoline was discovered in samples from the remains of the home. Did they say where the gasoline was found? So Catherine Isler, a living room area, um, who was 28, and Terrence Lewis, who was 45, were charged with involuntary manslaughter and recklessly endangering the welfare of children. However, there has never been any indication that the parents had anything to do with the actual arson. They were just negligent assholes. They were each sentenced to four and a half to nine years in prison. At the time of his arrest, Lewis said he wanted revenge and was quoted as saying, if I catch that guy, then I will be able and I mean it, I will kill him. Oh, yes. Put it down. Interesting that he said the guy and him and not whoever did this. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it kind of seems like maybe he had issues with someone specific in the past. It, it just seems very specific. It's probably just assumed that it was a guy. Because that's typically the thought with criminals is that it's a guy. It doesn't really matter what the crime is. There's that standard thought that some guy did it. I think you might be reading too much into it, but maybe not. (laughs) That's true. And Amanda, you might mention this, but we were talking about the profile and what most arsonists look like. So... That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, ninety percent of them are male. 
So makes sense. So the parents each spent a few years in prison and released in the early 1990s. Lewis, now in his 70s, is serving time at the State Correctional Institution at Somerset for an unrelated charge. Um, And Amanda had actually done some digging. She found out he's actually not still in prison, but he is still alive, correct? From what you found? I didn't. Yeah, from what I found, I think he still is alive, but he has like assault charges and public drunkenness and DUIs and quite the list of stuff. Fun. So apparently during the manslaughter trial, neither showed any emotion as the deaths of their children were recounted in detail, which I mean, we do need to think about the fact that everyone grieves differently. So I'll always kind of throw that out there. I mean, some people are just really quick to judge. They could be totally desensitized to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you're right. So Kyle Snedden, who was one of the firefighters that I had mentioned, would go on to be the police chief of Uniontown and said that he spent the better part of his life trying to forget that night. And it's hard for him to remember specifics. Now, the timeline is interesting. According to an article in the Pittsburgh Gazette from February 1988, Apparently, the children went to bed around 8 p.m. The parents left around 9.30 p.m. And the house was on fire by 10.07 p.m. So that was pretty quick. Um, The person or people that said it must have been waiting outside or maybe they were already in the house. Um, So Mark was awakened by Tara's screams and attempted to save his siblings. Apparently, he couldn't reach his sister's room because of the fire. And the two younger boys were too scared to follow him as he jumped out of the second story window onto the porch roof and then jumped to the ground. There was a custody hearing from Mark, but no information was disclosed to protect the privacy of a minor. I haven't found any official theories in the media. It seems like um, all that they say is that it was definitely arson uh, started with gasoline in the living room. So I'm going to kind of just throw it over to Amanda now for some comments. Um, so it caught me att- my attention. I wanted to know more about like the behavior behind an arsonist. And I found an article that was a collaboration between the FBI um, report and statistics from the U.S. Fire Administration, which is part of Homeland Security. And it says that half of all arsons are committed by those younger than 18 and are often neglected and have a history of physical abuse or humiliation. The other half are typically in their late 20s. If they're over than that, then it's usually for profit, like insurance money for a business. And it goes on to say that like 90% of them, the arsonists are white males, and the primary motivation is anger, followed by rage and excitement or arousal. So if we go with the first 50%, that they're talking about, it would make me lean towards the remaining child, Mark, knowing that Terrence has a history of drinking and aggravated assault. It definitely makes me wonder if someone looked into that further. And then if you go with the other 50%, given that age gap, like maybe there was somebody that in Catherine's life previously that might've contributed. Yeah. It's very possible. And I guess I'll just mention that I'm still a little bit confused about whether Terrence is the father of these children or not. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I remember being confused during my research and I just like cannot remember where I landed with that. 
but I mean, he was at least, you know, their stepdad. So, I mean, I know that's not like a ton of information, but do you guys have any thoughts, any ideas of what this could be? I wonder if, and I know I'm not one of the guys you were asking, but I wonder if there were financial difficulties within the family. Um, Like Amanda mentioned, insurance money on a business. Like, I wonder if the parents maybe set something. I mean, I can't imagine lighting your house on fire knowing your four kids are in it but i mean right oh my god they wanted to get money of some sort like they thought maybe it would just be a small fire that would only burn in the living room if that's where the gasoline was um i don't know that's kind of my only if you're gonna commit insurance fraud maybe don't try to kill your kids take your children to grandma's jesus christ (laughs) yeah it's fair couple of the things I focus on, um, your timeline, the kids were in bed by eight, um, and the parents left, I think you said at, uh, nine 30. So mm-hmm. 37 minutes later is the amount of time it took that the fire was actually visible by somebody outside of the house or was it the children or Mark or somebody that called 911 at that point? Do we know that? It was the neighbor that spotted the fire, the neighbor that the parents were at. So even even looking back in the 80s, the synthetic materials that were in the furniture and everything are a lot different than what we have nowadays. Um, nowadays, the material that they use for furniture burns a lot faster, a lot hotter, and spreads a lot quicker doubling and tripling the size of the fire very quickly. Um, Back in the 80s and 70s, I mean, it still spread, but the synthetics that they were using, the materials that they were using, didn't burn as fast. Um, So 37 minutes for an outsider to see a fire um, at 10.07 at night when they're not on fire watch, if you will, Um, you know, that's not untypical. Um, where do the kids sleep? That was another question I had just by looking at it. Were they all on a second floor at that time? I believe so, from what I've read. So, it, to me, it sound, it, it's arson. We have gasoline. My question is, was it a fire that was set intentionally? Of course, yes. Was it set? away from the children to not be seen while they were doing it. Um, I mean, it, it was downstairs. The kids were upstairs. They had enough time to start the fire. Um, and then by the time the neighbor saw it, it grew to the extent that it did that they Mark, I think is his name, uh, got out onto the roof of the sec of the porch. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, the smoke would rise. The smoke would go to the second floor more, uh, you know, quickly than anywhere else in the house because, uh, you know, smoke rises. So looking at the timeline, I mean, there was plenty of time to set a fire inside and have it spread with the accelerant. So with that all being said, I, I mean... Unless there was forced entry, were the doors locked, were they unlocked? I mean, it was in the 80s. So those are all questions I have about it. Yeah, that's interesting you ask about the forced entry because I didn't 
really think of that. And I didn't see any articles that said anything about in the the 80s, too. How many times did you lock your doors? Right. And it seems like they were across to a neighbor's house. Yeah, it just seemed like they were pretty nonchalant about the whole thing. So I guess it's very possible that the doors weren't even locked. But like, were they at the neighbor's house or were they at the bar? I I believe they were at the neighbor's house. It just seems, you know, it's, they said that the neighbor was going to use the phone and looked out the window and saw the fire. So I just assumed they were up in the apartment. Is this where you guys throw out theories? This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. In the mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who work these cases, along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook wherever you get your podcasts. Me personally, with what I'm seeing and and what I've read so far, uh, you have the oldest child who probably gets talked down to from the father or stepfather way too often showing his criminal history. Um, So was this an act of heroism where I'll start the fire, save all the kids. And by saving all the kids, I'm the hero of the family. Maybe dad will stop picking on me now. Yeah. And it went horribly wrong. Do you think it could have something to do with some sort of like revenge or rage on his part from being picked on? Absolutely. Either an act of rage or the fact of he wanted to be the hero of the family. Hmm. I I mean, that that's one theory. To do it this way and in that short amount of time, like you had said, that is a short amount of time. If somebody from outside the house did it, they had to have access to a few different things. A, they had to bring their own gasoline. Mm-hmm. So they're, if somebody didn't see somebody walking down the street with a five-gallon pail of gasoline, well, yeah. but they saw the fire start, you know, you're going to have to bring some stuff with you. If they had to force entry, well, how did they force entry? Did they bring a pry bar? Did they bring tools to get into the house? 
So you're not rolling up with a an arson truck and going in and starting the fire. Yeah. Yeah, those are really good points. Someone pulls up with a truck that says, we are arsonists. That'd be a yeah. pretty good giveaway. Like, but then if, if the kid did it, where did he get the gas? Oh, but he's probably used to mowing grass. He knows yeah. where all the stuff is in the shed. Hmm. He saw him leave and then was downstairs. I mean, if you're doing it purposely to kill somebody, I, I would do it near the, the people that you're trying to get rid of. To sleep with the bedroom door shut? <laughs> yeah. So if it takes 37 minutes for the the fire to get to that point, would you think that they probably had to light that like pretty soon after the parents left or? With gasoline, I mean, the gasoline, it's in its name. It's an accelerant. It's going to make that fire spread a lot quicker, a lot faster. Okay. That's its job. That's its number one job. So it depends. I mean, it's very vague on how much they found doused. I mean, right. if we had just a, you know, dollar bill area of gasoline to start the fire, or did we douse the whole cat, the whole couch? Um, that that changes it up a whole lot. That's true. And I'm wondering if they worked from that angle at all, you know, questioning the kid. I'm sure they probably wouldn't have released too much of that information since he was a minor. But yeah, I don't know. Oh, uh, I was doing a little bit of research on the Uniontown Fire Department. I mean, Uniontown as a whole was a city and we're looking back into the 80s and talking about how fast this fire grew and whatnot. You know, I mean, I'm sure everybody's out there thinking, you know, why do they think the fire department still want to get there possibly or whatever? Why would it be so hard to get the kids out? Uh, you have to remember in the 80s, communication amongst the fire departments usually was handled by the fire department. Now, obviously, I, I don't run with them. I don't know their their SOGs and whatnot and how they operate. But, uh, you know, uh, fire safety back in those days wasn't very popular in some of these, some of these out west areas uh, that weren't super close to major cities. So. Um, you know, just keep that in mind as well as you're going through all this. Yeah, that That's is true. sad and sad to think that maybe if they had better, you know, resources, maybe they could have gotten them out. But, and also to keep in mind the fire equipment back then versus fire equipment now was a lot different, uh, i.e. the turnout gear that they may wear back then was a lot different than what it is now. We can We can take a lot more heat than they can back then. So a rescue that may not have been possible in the 80s may be possible today. So that's also mm-hmm. something to keep in mind as well. Okay. Well, any other final thoughts, guys? Uh, I'll, no, I'll, no. Throw out a, I'll throw out a final thought here. Um, I mean, from, from just sitting back here and listening, I mean, that's what, a lot what I do. But uh, um, and listening to what Kenny has said and whatnot, it, it definitely sounds like it possibly was an inside too. Walking to somebody's house at 930-ish on, in January, which probably would have been dark while the, the parents were across the street and just dump gas and run out and not be seen and not make a commotion when you light a fire, that's a, that's a bold move. So it definitely sounds like the, the possibility of it being an inside job is a, a lot higher. I would agree with that. Yeah, and I should have 
looked, maybe Amanda already did. I don't know. But sometimes I like to look at Google maps and see what was around the house. And I didn't because I guess it would probably make a difference if they were in like a super highly populated area or if maybe they had woods behind them or something like that where someone could maybe hide. I did look at the house and it looks like it was like a brick two story single family home. Did they have like trees in the backyard or maybe a place there where there were a few trees, but not like anything wooded. But then again, I didn't look at like demographics as far as like how close the neighbor was. Gotcha. Looking on a map now, I mean, of course, it's mm-hmm. going to show what it looks like in 2021. Um, it's a neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, it's not like. It's not Perry County, Lancaster County, out in the woods and farms stuff. I mean, it's a a neighborhood. There's a lot of just houses nearby. But again, that's now. That's true. It could have been built up quite a bit, you know. Yeah. In recent days. But, And brick houses, from what I... Correct me if I'm wrong, but like brick houses definitely hide a fire longer than like a wood frame construction. It's just like an oven. It just, I mean, it won't break out through brick as easy as it will through um, wood and plywood, shingles, and siding. So it really would have had to, like, be built up for that neighbor to have seen it. Oh, yeah, because the the first thing, I mean, if they didn't see it through a window, the first thing that's going to fail would be windows or a door or something like that. It wouldn't fail through the brick. Mm. And the fire was on the first floor. So it didn't go through the roof before anybody saw it. So possibly a window failed and busted out because of the heat. And that alarmed the the neighbor and they saw the flames coming out the window then. But definitely the actual brick mortar of the house, that did not fail prior to a window failing. Oh, okay. I would think at that point there'd be so much smoke upstairs. Yeah. Especially if it was set on the first floor, that that stairwell to the second floor would act as a chimney, and all that smoke and everything else just funneled right up there. And if then, like we said before, if they don't sleep their doors open, that smoke's just going to find every ounce of space to take up, and it's going to do it. It's the it's the equivalent of if you took a house, you turned it upside down, you dumped water into it, it's going to go to the path of least resistance. I was going to say, like when taking your mods, how they show the upside down house. Yep, exactly. Well, don't know what you're talking about, but go- <laughs> <laughs> I was whatever say, that can't is. Relate. Uh- <laughs> firefighting, firefighting classes, like he said, it's just a house, and they show it upside down and like pouring water into it, and it takes the path of least resistance. So, like, if you have a window open, if you door open, that's the way it's gonna go. I gotcha, but it is like fire safety wise, it is safer to sleep with your doors closed. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh yeah. Take note, people. Any other fire safety tips for the episode? Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, if you want, I, mean, I don't know if this is everywhere. I I could be wrong. I did, I was told this a while back that on most constructions, if you walk into a room that is uh, livable, like a bedroom or something, typically if you look straight ahead, there's going to be a window. So I don't know if that's about all of them or whatnot. But like straight from the door, straight you from the door, enter. typically and every single time, if you look straight ahead, usually there's a window. So it's also something to keep in mind if you ever get stuck in, the, in a situation like that where you need to get out. Interesting. I really never thought about that. But don't open the window unless you're actually going to jump. Correct. Yes. 
because of adding oxygen? See, I know things. Anyone with information regarding the fire is asked to call police at 724-439-7111 and asked to speak to Trooper Dare. Additionally, Fayette County Crime Stoppers is offering up to a $1,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the case. Tips can also be made by calling 1-888-404-TIPS, or you can contact the Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers if you have information on this crime, any serious crime, or wanted person. Uh, Call toll-free at 1-800-4PA-TIPS which is 8477, or online at www.p3tips.com. And thank you guys so much for joining us, Brendan and Kenny. We really appreciate it. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins, production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.